0: This is not a terrible moment, this is you starting to realize your real power, how much power you truly have, what you do want, and we never understand more clearly what we do want in this life than by recognizing what we don't want.
1: Hey, everyone, I'm Yasmin Nori, and you're listening to the Behind Her Empire podcast. I'm on a mission to showcase successful self-made women who share honest stories and lessons of what it really takes to create the life you want and build your own empire. I want to welcome this week's guest, Karen Eldad, to our show today. Karen is a speaker and founder of With Enthusiasm, which provides world-class personal and professional coaching. Prior to becoming an internationally recognized coach, Karen was a successful businesswoman with a very wide-ranging career. After spending years in publishing and launching her own marketing agency, Karen never felt fulfilled in her journey. It wasn't until she went through a horrible divorce that she hit rock bottom and realized her life had to take a turn. It was at this point she discovered the world of self-help and was determined to focus on her own happiness and living a life she truly wanted. Fast forward to today, she's a trusted advisor to industry leading executives and high profile entrepreneurs. Karen's mission is to help high performers reach their highest self and most inspiring goals, start and scale purpose driven businesses, and discover their real purpose and joy while having an unstoppable mindset. Karen has worked with notable clients like LVMH, Richmond, Deutsche Bank, JP Morgan, and Global Fashion Group, as well as several high profile private clients. I'm excited for this interview. We'll talk all about how to get over your blind spots, why you're destined to achieve greatness, the power of self love and compassion, and how to deal with imposter syndrome, which so many of us deal with. Welcome to the show, Karen. Thank you, Yasmin.
0: It's my pleasure, my honor. I've listened to a couple of podcast episodes and I can't believe I'm here. I
1: just love the company I'm in today. Thank you. Of course. And a big shout out to our mutual friend, Tracy Holland, who got us together. She's amazing. So I know this conversation will be a fun one. And there's so many themes that we'll talk about that I think will really resonate with our listeners. So I'm excited to jump into it. I hope to do Tracy
0: Holland justice.
1: Yes, you will. You will. Absolutely. So I'd love to start with your childhood. For you, you've had a really interesting upbringing. You're a daughter of a diplomat, lived and traveled to so many different countries. Can you share more about what your childhood was like and how you think it's really impacted you as a woman today?
0: I don't particularly believe that childhood really has a tremendous effect. I think the synthesis of it is what has a tremendous effect so the first thing i want to say is i had a great childhood i was extraordinarily lucky i was born to a family of yes immigrants like all of israel at the time i'm israeli but very very successful immigrants hard-working immigrants kind immigrants middle class immigrants we had everything that we could possibly need i had all the madonna tapes and cds as soon as they came out yasmin so i was extraordinarily lucky To be living in that time, the 80s and the 90s, which were, I think, relatively stable times also, globally speaking. So all of the dreams were available to me. And I was particularly fortunate that in my family, my father pursued the career of diplomacy because as a diplomat, we moved every two or three years to a different country. Of course, there's a lot of resentment through that process. Children do not like to be moved. However, because I've been blessed like Tracy Holland with a preternaturally extroverted behavioral style, I loved, very quickly grew to love, my new circumstances, and this shaped really my worldview in a couple of ways. The first is I speak many languages. To this day, I am fluent in five languages, and this has allowed me to understand people on another level and to communicate with people around soccer and the Eurovision, and no matter what your country's about, I know something about it. And that's given me a a unique way of relating to people. The second is to help me kind of understand that we're all more alike than we're unalike. And the third, I think, is to make me kind of resilient because unlike being attached, third culture kids, that's what we're called, those of us who grow up in host countries and don't have an identity around patriotism. I know this is a little bit of a foreign stretch for a lot of people we kind of belong everywhere. And when we belong everywhere, we're just a little bit more malleable in our style. We're less attached. And that gives you some freedom and some generosity towards others who might be a little bit more clinging to an identity. So this was a marvelous way to grow up and really gave me or informed me of a worldview that I think might be a little broader. But that don't mean that I didn't also grow up with a lot of the garbage that we all grow up with. Yeah, childhood matters, but no, it doesn't. As in, at some point, we all become sanguine grown-ups. And those grown-ups have to decide what they want to do now with this life that they have now. And to do that, the best thing you can do is try to get the best meaning of the past. So even to find the value in the more detrimental area of childhood, so that you can move forward into something that's free.
1: I think that's really powerful and gives us good perspective in terms of really associating a different meaning with the hardship in your life and synthesizing that in your own head, I think is critical for you to tap into your potential and superpowers that you have, which I know you talk a lot about. So I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about your early adult life. I know... Being the good Israeli that you are, you moved back home to Israel and joined the army and afterwards got your master's. And you've opened up about how you didn't exactly know what you wanted to do in your life at that point, but you knew what you were, quote unquote, supposed to do. A lot of people, I'm sure listening, including myself, really resonate with that and have gone down the path of what we're supposed to or required to do. I'd love to hear more about your journey and early career.
0: Well, you said a mouthful there. Yes, you've completely touched into when we say everyone we are generalizing there are a few very very lucky individuals who are brave enough to do what they truly want to do and to know what they truly want to do very young this is not the overriding case and i hope everybody listening in here does tap into what we're saying because they relate to it and they are more likely to relate to it than not and here's why As we all grow up in any society, and again, I coach people from Ukraine to Sydney, people who have nothing to do with each other culturally, they're still all living in societies in which there are societal standards. Those societal standards are things we want to line up with. We are friendly creatures who are social animals and social animals like to line up. That conditioning, no matter where you are, is absorbed by you. Again, no matter how talented and how highfalutin you are, you have absorbed some messages. Messages like, boys don't cry, women should be rich or thin, you must get married, you should have children, you should work in XYZ type of career and within this tiny bracket that is in our immediate range of sight so that you don't stand out too much for greater or for lower. And so we live all of our lives to try to line up with that standard. I too had these standards as I was growing up and coming through the college system. For example, when I graduated from the London School of Economics, I noticed that most of my friends went to Bain & Company, to McKenzie, to Accenture, mostly consultants. They became consultants. Now, luckily, I had the wherewithal to understand that working until 11 o'clock in modeling uh, or financial modeling was definitely not going to be the way I wanted to spend my time. And what was more attractive to me was another big player of the time, and that was publishing. The Devil Wears Prada was a huge movie at the time. I remember it. It just came out, and I thought, yes, I shall work at Vogue, and this is what I'll do. I'll dress really, really well every day, and then I'll marry really, really well, and then I'll have the extravagant and extraordinary life, and that will mean that I have made it. Mm, That didn't work out so well for me. And I'll tell you why. It's because it was exhausting. It was trading so heavily on trying to line up that I wasn't really spending that time trying to figure out who I really was and what I truly wanted, what I really wanted to belong to, what my life should actually look like if it were according to that little girl who once loved dancing in her room to Madonna. And hopefully... With time, you will see, because all of us trade off our lives and we end up kind of falling ass back into careers that then start basically just becoming a chase of the next promotion and the next promotion rather than a real strategic step back of what do I want and how will I build it? What I'm saying is I hope that ultimately that comes to a collapse because that becomes very unsustainable and very exhausting. Like all marriages that were not chosen from true love, true passion, Careers that were chosen not from true love and true passion will also reach some combustible point. And that's a great thing. That's what happened to me. And this is why I always say to people, pray for a shitstorm, because that is the turning point.
1: That is a great point. And it takes me to my next question because you do talk about that a lot in terms of adversity is really a blessing. It stops you in your tracks. It gives you perspective to think about, do I want to be in this career? Do I want to be in this relationship? You've been very open about your marriage, right? You married someone, we talked about this when we met in person, rich, tall, he totally fit the part. You had the perfect job. And at some point the relationship was toxic and you wanted to get out of that. So can you kind of talk us through some of the Tough times you went through because I think there's so much there that really pushed you into the world of self help and coaching, which I think a lot of people will also resonate with. I love this question. Let
0: me tell you the story. Let's back up for a second. Beep, beep, beep. I'm going to paint you an Instagram picture of what my life was like at 32, 33. I'm married to a tall guy with no chest hair. These are very important things who speaks three languages and works for a big bank. And wears beautiful suits and always matches his tie to my dress. We looked great on Instagram. I remember sitting next to gaggles of girls at brunch, Yasmin, and they would come up to me and say, you're so lucky. And I was like, yes, I am, except deep down inside, just like the Britney Spears song, I knew that everything in my life felt awful. And that is not an exaggeration. I would go home to the nicest house I've ever lived in, and I was sleeping in the library, because I could not tolerate being around him because he hated cats. I love cats. My pets were not going anywhere. And he was so mean to me. It's almost hard to describe even today how many comments I endured about the fatness of my thighs and the ridiculousness of my friends and the silliness of my abilities, which was absolutely breathtaking to think about in hindsight because with due respect, I went to better schools. I had fantastic friends, relationships that have endured since then and will endure through the test of time. And I know today what my worth is, whether or not I weigh two extra pounds. But here I was tolerating an abusive relationship, a career that was nice, but definitely not a hundred percent, the fullness of my potential, which could go way above and beyond and did not rely on a company signing my paychecks every month. And... Also, I mean, really, I was living in Zurich, which is a very nice city, but certainly not for a New Yorker who's used to a completely different lifestyle. So I was so disconnected from who I really am, what I'm really worth, and what should feel good to me. At 32, 33, as a kid, luckily, I started to realize that those awful moments, that terrible emotion, the triggers, the moments that felt really just aggressively awful, they were all for me. In fact, I believe the universe was communicating loud and clear in those moments and saying, Karen, you got to get out of here. This is your chance. This is not a terrible moment. This is you starting to realize your real power, how much power you truly have, what you do want. And we never understand more clearly what we do want in this life than by recognizing what we don't want. Mm, Amen. So it's got to get terrible. It has got to get terrible. That's why I say pray for a shit storm. That's why I say pray
1: for things to happen to you in threes, because that's a clear sign that you got to go. That's so powerful. And it's unfortunate that sometimes adversity is the only thing that will push you over the edge to make that significant leap, which is really required you to make big changes for your life for the better, which is evident in your own story. So I know you got divorced, you moved to New York, and you talk about how you were really broke at that time. And I know there was an unfortunate situation where your storage with all your stuff also went on fire. I definitely wanna dig deeper into this because you're a huge believer in cultivating a strong money mindset. And I know at this time, you lost everything, you were really broke. And I'm curious, what really helped you overcome that tough time period in your life?
0: Well, let's talk first about the resonance because it's so important for everybody out there who's hearing the words, my life came to a collapse or something like that and thinking, I don't know this dark night of the soul. Chances are you're a little bit off about that because I have yet to meet a certain person who has not known the dark night of the soul. I'm also a suicide counselor and clearly I'm a little more exposed to this than other people. But if you really get to know people, you really get to talk to them. You start to understand that, I mean, I've done two sessions today, one with a former Miss Universe, one with a big-time trial lawyer. We have all known the dark night of the soul, and it's what we want to do with it, that come-to-Jesus moment, that collapse on the kitchen floor. That's when magic can happen, if you let it happen. Now, I'm going to tell you the story of how I fell into that collapse. Not only did I start getting divorced, anyone who's ever been through a divorce— Tracy talks about her divorce in very, very shining terms, and I think that's commendable and beautiful, beautiful thing. When I was going through my divorce, it was not a beautiful, beautiful thing. It was collapsing around me. It was ugly. It was lawyers calling me in the middle of the workday to say pretty aggressive things. It was my ex-husband having me followed and having my phone tap, like really weird, ugly stuff that I hope no one has to experience, but that I know, again, as a counselor, that many people do experience. At the same time, I uh, ended up starting to live on my friend's couches because I really didn't have any money. Both of us, though we were making decent money, were really awful with it. And again, that has to do with self-worth. It has to do with not caring about money. It has to do with not paying attention to money. I also think that it has to do with women's conditioning. to This is not something I have to think about. Somebody else is going to think about it for me. I think that was 100% my mindset at the time. So... As a result, don't have any money. And so all the Prada and all the Chanel and all the very beautiful clothes that I had bought over the years to keep up with the Joneses and look really, really good at my Devil Wears Prada job, I put in storage because, again, I'm sleeping on friends' sofas. Don't worry. I could still afford the Soho House membership and the Ubers. These were very important things to me. The stuff is in storage as storage burns down. I lost not only all my whatever I had in the divorce, but I also... Lost basically all of my things, and then I lost my job, and my job was my whole identity. And this is when I start to understand something pretty profound. My identity has been wrapped up in achievements and is in things. The only thing I have in my hand is self esteem, and self esteem is garbage because self esteem depends on achievements and on how we rank them against society. And so, if you take them away, Your esteem exits stage left or stage right. You are left with a shell, with a frightened little child who doesn't know what to do with themselves. This was the best, greatest blessing of my life because for better or worse, at some point when both of my cats died within a month, which is a very, very unfortunate coincidence, I retreated. I completely retreated and thought for better or worse, Having nothing or being at rock bottom means there's only one way out, and it's up. What do I do now? What do I still have? And this is when I started to dive into what I had previously thought was not necessary, and that is coaching, proper coaching. Today, I live in a world of Tom Brady's. Everybody who is a superstar really should work with a coach. There is nothing like this. But it completely transformed my life because instead of self-esteem, what I replaced it with was self-worth, was really knowing that I'm a valuable human being, that I'm living an imperfect experience and so is everybody else, and that I can be relaxed about this because there's nothing serious going on around here, certainly not Prada. That is not serious. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. It's fun to have. It is not the be-all end-all. And I completely reconstructed my life from the ashes of the former
1: life, literally. That's so incredible to hear. And also, you weren't in your 20s changing your career. All of this was happening later in your life. I was 36. Exactly. And people always put so much pressure on themselves that they need to figure things out. And look, your life completely took a change after all this hardship. And you're now making the most money that you've ever made. You've been the happiest I've you've ever been. You're in a fantastic relationship with your fiance who seems amazing. And it's so beautiful that you're sharing your story and you're helping people get to that life because I do think a beautiful life is possible for anyone listening. For
0: anyone at any moment. But here's what it depends on. It depends on what I dedicated my TED talk to and most of my coaching to. It depends on understanding and having the humility to know that you don't know what you do not yet know. To really have faith that the universe is about to offer you a blessing way, way greater than what you can see in this moment. If I could see the blessing that was coming, the huge business, the best, most handsome relationship I've ever been in in my life, a man, I pray Ryan never dies because he's so delicious, and I hope he stays in here with me forever. If I understood that there would be two new cats, and dogs in my future, and new cities, and new experiences, and new everything, new friends, new babies, new everything in this life, I would never have succumbed to that dark night of the soul. And that is the value of the dark night of the soul, to start to know that you don't know what you don't know. And if you understand that, you have the vulnerability to admit Mm. that you still have room to grow. You will find so many people willing to collaborate with you and to
1: help you get right there. And that's a good, good lesson. And to be honest, I started these podcasts because... It's really tough for me to tap into that faith and have grace that everything is working in your favor. The right things will happen at the right time because I'm naturally an impatient person, overachiever. But genuinely speaking, going through your story and every other successful woman on the podcast, they have very similar themes, right? They've gone through really tough times. They've had grace to really accept what is coming into them. And that really took them to the next level. So it's just good to hear because I feel pretty passionate about. Being just open-minded about what your life can bring you versus trying to force everything.
0: Let's make a really underline this point. It's so important. Everyone listening to Behind Her Empire is building an empire. Everyone, therefore, is an overachiever, is in the category that I coach, is in your category, which means your number one enemy is impatience. Impatience is actually a lack of faith. It is not about your awesomeness and your intensity. Don't frame it that way. It's garbage. Now let's talk about how you can really mitigate it. The word that you use, accept is a good word. Here's an even better one. Surrender. Mm. Surrender. You go ahead and play yourself, Jesus, take the wheel by Carrie Underwood right now and start to understand that the forces that are working for you are way greater than the paltry, teeny tiny, finite force of your willpower. You have great willpower, good for you, but you are nothing compared to what the universe is cooking up for you. And if you can really let go, let go, know that you've done your best, that there comes a moment where you've done everything you can do and let Jesus take the wheel or whatever metaphor. I'm Jewish. So it's kind of comical for me to use this phrase, but it's a wonderful way to really allow things in to get you to that point. I want to tell a really short story. If, if you have the time, it was one that really impacted me. I was listening to Oprah, the great one tell a story about The Color Purple and how she came to be in the movie. She was a regular person, hard to imagine, but there was a time when Oprah was unknown by anyone. Yep. And read the book, The Color Purple, became massively obsessed with the book, bought, went to the bookstore after reading about it in the New York Times, bought every copy that they had in the bookstore while she was still in her pajamas, handed them out like chiclets. Was obsessed with the book for years after that and that is the point at which she hears that they're having auditions steven spielberg and quincy jones are making a movie about the color purple Ah! she must be in it she thinks to herself she must be in it the obsession grows she stands in line in chicago to audition she gives the audition of a lifetime and then the casting director says to her basically don't call us we'll call you you sit down wait Two weeks later, she calls the casting director. The casting director says, why are you calling us? We are seeing real actresses like Alfre Woodard for this role. You be patient. We'll get back to you. At this point, Oprah hangs up and thinks to herself, well, there's got to be something bigger at play here. I got to retreat. She checks herself into what she calls a fat farm just to go and clear her mind and, and find acceptance. She walks around a field doing what Oprah does, talking to God and saying, I have to surrender into this. I have to feel the point at which this, I'm okay with this. I can really feel myself going to the theater and even congratulating Alfre for being in this role and for knowing that God has a bigger plan for me. And whatever that bigger plan is, is going to work out. And she says it was at that moment that somebody came to get her because there was a phone call for her. Remember the time before cell phones? And she walked inside and it was Steven Spielberg letting her know that she had the role. That is the power of surrender. That is the power of not forcing things. That is the power of letting what really is for you to come to you. I believe this with all my heart. What's coming for you will not pass you by. Can't avoid it.
1: Absolutely. And also when you're in that state of surrender and letting go, it makes you just feel at ease and your life day to day is already just feeling better. And one thing I'd love for you to touch upon, which Oprah clearly does. And she said that she is a natural manifester and that's what she does every day. But I'd love to get your perspective, working with clients and your thoughts on the importance of manifesting and being really clear about what you want in your life.
0: Well, I think that the key to manifesting is focusing and focusing with appreciation on everything as it comes to you, because when you do focus with appreciation on everything as it comes to you, you sort of can't avoid, but feel like a very lucky person. And it's truly magical. I do understand, for example, I shared this with you in the beginning of January, I didn't write resolutions. I just wrote down, I would like to work with two companies in Russia and in Australia, because I've never been to Moscow or Sydney. And I'd really, really love to have that experience. And within the month, I got a contact with Sydney and with Moscow and even Ukraine, which is adjacent. And these are three new clients that I manifested out of nowhere with no previous references. They literally, one of them just found me on LinkedIn. Just unusual, amazing stuff that happens. But I think that the secret is not that coming to me. The secret is that I noticed the goodness of what was coming to me. If we took a moment every day. To just, and you don't have to have a gratitude journal or anything like that if it's not your thing, but like just to appreciate the magnificence of this day. You are breathing everything that has to go right in your body for you to breathe right, especially during a pandemic. The wonderful weather that you're having today, the ability that you have had to create. All of the beauty around you, you just said, for example, right before this interview started, you guys redid the second bedroom as an office. You are blessed with a second office, something you did not have before. Then you start to realize that really everything is a manifestation, and it's always a response to your appreciation. By the way, by the same token, it can be a response to your shitty, shitty mood. Have you ever walked into a meeting room in a bad
1: mood?-hmm,
0: as chaos usually followed yes. That's a manifestation, too. That is when we start to really recognize that we are all glorious creators, but we're always creating in recognition of our emotions. So you really want to get those up and up. You really want to get a hold of why you do what you do and start working with it more deliberately so you can manifest more deliberately.
1: I love that. And one thing that you mentioned, which stands out to me, is just really having that focus and being clear with what you want in your life. And it just reminds me, I've never done that so clearly with my career until the past two years. But I did do that when I was looking for a partner. I was going on so many horrible dates and the guys were nice, but no one really, really connected with me. And I'm like, let me write down and get clear. Maybe I'm confused with what I want. So I wrote down a long list. Every time I'd go on a bad date, I'd add what I liked, what I did didn't like. was kind of a game. And next thing you know, my now fiance, he genuinely hits everything on the list. So I would love to hear more about relationship because I know that is something you're also passionate about. And it's not too different than no. how you think about self worth. and Yeah. And
0: actually it all does start with self worth. So Gloria Steinem says, and I love this quote, that self-compassion isn't everything, but without it, there is nothing. And that is 100% true. You have to start with you, what you love about you, how worthy you are, how deserving you are to be in this life. When you work from the opposite premise, which is I can and I will, and I'm awesome because I say so, which always is flexing. It's always ego. You're usually going to attract that. And that's not going to feel very good for very long. Because they're going to look for your conditional meeting of their conditions too. And you can't meet those conditions. I don't care if you're Cindy Crawford, you're not going to be beautiful for the rest of your life or brilliant for the rest of your life. I know neuroscientists who've had aneurysms. Things happen. But to love yourself and to love the experience of this life is the precondition for absolutely everything because it teaches you to see a certain way. And when you see a certain way, you cannot help but focus the right way. So let's talk about starting your business first. Starting your business first is you can look at it both ways. You can say it's not here. And I can't believe it's not here yet. And look at all these pipsqueaks on Instagram. They're obviously doing better than me. Or look at the progress I've made today. And I've had a brilliant idea. And I've done some incredible things in the past. And I can do some incredible things in the future. And I keep crossing paths with people who are more and more high level. That's got to be a sign of my good fortune. You can see exactly the same of two scenarios in any given point. It's about your focus. The same goes for relationships. My game in relationships changed when I understood my worth and started dating like this. Instead of showing up on a date and thinking, oh my God, I hope he likes me. Is my outfit good enough? I started to think, do I like this guy? What do I like about him? What's awesome about him? What's exciting about this? Are they a benchmark of what's to come? Are they close but no cigar? Are we getting hotter and hotter? My whole game changed. Really sad I remember my first day with Ryan, everybody remembers the first day with the love of their life, like it was yesterday. Six hours of just sitting in front of a person who does not talk much. Ryan doesn't <laughs> talk much, which is great because two of us in a relationship, catastrophic. And thinking, gosh, this guy feels great. He's so easy to be around. He's so pleasant. He's so thoughtful. He gets references. He's obviously a very, very big reader like me. Boom. We were in the zone. And by the way, the same goes for money. You can look at your bank account as empty and doesn't have enough money for building the empire of my dreams. Or you can say open and ready to receive. And here are the contracts that I can definitely start calling my way. When your focus is on the second, you are going to move into the zone. It is law.
1: Absolutely. And there's so much I want to talk about. You mentioned so many things that I want to unpack. And one of them, and we talked about this when we met in person, is the taboo around women and money. And you mentioned it a few times throughout the interview, but I want to talk more about it. Because I know at some point when you were really broke, I think in an interview, you said you had like $50 or something really low in your bank account. 37. Yes, there you go. And I would love for you to share that story because what was yet to come and kind of your mentality around money, because I think that's something that no matter what stage you are in your life or how much money or how much money you don't have, it's an important mindset.
0: Well, I think it's the most important mindset. And I just want to screenshot so I remember this moment because it's such a wonderful moment. You know what? This isn't just about women. I'll tell you why I'm obsessed with women right now. It's February 2021. At this point, more than a million women have left the workforce. I am understanding through the media, that much of this is voluntary. And it is simply because they're making a gross calculation of how much they earn versus their partner. And they think that that's just logical because of childcare, that they should simply take this on and forsake their career and self-actualization for this. I think that's absolute nonsense. Careers are about more than a paycheck. And the fact that people are not choosing careers, purpose-driven, fulfilling careers to begin with is very, very important because it means that they've been chasing the wrong things, certainty, stability, prestige, whatever. But they have not been looking for true self-actualization, true fulfillment. So that's problem number one. Problem number two is most people don't know anything about money. And were you taught about money? grade school? Nope. 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 Me neither. I have the best education in the world. Real expensive schools. Didn't teach me anything about money. Didn't teach me to care about money. As a matter of fact, my society taught me that caring about money is rather crass. Speaking about money, even more vulgar. So really try to stay away from it. And of course, through osmosis, because of the many, many generations in my family who got married and had many children, I learned that really don't occupy yourself with that. It's okay. Other people will take care of it for you. Marry rich. Just last week, before people start telling me the new generation is not like that, just last week, my manicurist, who was 29 years old because I asked her, said to me, my goal for this year is to marry rich. And I said, Mercedes, sweetheart, how about getting rich? You ever considered that? Because that would be real awesome. And yes, you can do it. And I came up with 20 ideas of how she could take her incredible gift at doing nails. And I'm not joking about that. And making people feel good and making people feel at ease and taking it to the next level. This is down to you. When I got divorced, I started to realize something pretty unbelievable, something that Michelle Obama realized when she started walking into rooms filled with men that she was afraid were smarter than her. I realized that the rich guys, the ones I was dating, the one I was married to, I was actually way smarter, way more talented. They're not that smart. They're not as talented. They are riddled with insecurities. I say this as a person who coaches superstars, all of us, All of us have the same insecurities. So what are you so scared of? Money can't be that scary if somebody else has figured it out. This is the beginning of the turn for me. And that's when I start reaching for wonderful books that I hope you put in your show notes. The Science of Getting Rich by Wallace Wallace. Itty bitty book. Kind of offensive. Unless you're really, really ready to hear the words, you will not have a happy life unless you're rich. Number two, Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill, which is a masterpiece. And number three, You Are a Badass at Making Money by Jen Sincero, which is also P.S. Hilarious, chapter five. I still laugh every time I read it, and I revisit that book often. So I've read these books. My mindset is completely changed about money. I start thinking about money not as some portfolio to accumulate and to guard with my life, with dragons, but more like oxygen. In and out, in and out, in and out. There's a wonderful moment in your interview with Tracy Holland, which was masterful, by the way, that I hope everybody listens to, where she talks about the majesty of her really caring so much about her portfolio to moving into this relaxed state. In and out, in and out, in and out. I really shifted from my bank account is empty to open and ready to receive. And so there came that day where I was supposed to pay my rent, but I had $37 in the bank. This is a very familiar occurrence for me at that stage, because that's how I'd been living my life. Make money, spend money, make money, spend money, make money, spend money. And I realized that I was not going to freak out. That was the first big shift. I could freak out, but it wasn't going to help me. Number two, I could choose to see it differently, open and ready to receive. That's when I started to ask myself, how am I open and ready to receive? And so I sat down and I did an exercise that I teach everybody today, write 20 action steps that you can literally create to bring you closer to your goal, which at that time was figure out how to pay for my rent. And I wrote out a couple of names of people with whom I was already liaising, who might be closing a contract with me, things that I could sell immediately on eBay that would help me close that gap, sell a kidney, believe it or not, that was on it, look in the sofas for loose change, check out my credit cards. I know they're maxed out, but that must mean that there's miles there. And this is how I found money everywhere. I found $265 in my house and lose change. P.S. I've been much, much more diligent about cleaning since then. Number two, I found a lot of miles on my credit card. So then I decided I got $265 and I've got a bunch of miles. Why be broke in New York where it's cold if I can go be broke in Miami? So I booked myself a first class ticket to Miami. And on that plane, I found myself sitting. Next to Lilia Stefan was a huge Latin American star, you know her aunt Gloria Stefan. They remembered me because they'd actually met me at a dinner party, believe it or not. And I am very chatty and very friendly, so good I made a good impression. And we were sitting there drinking wine, having an absolute blast when a miracle happened: the plane was grounded. Since the plane was grounded, Lily, who had with her one of those selfie cams, made a bunch of videos of herself stranded in an airport with who she called her coach. I have barely gotten Coach Karen off the ground at this point. Well, let me tell you, on that journey to Miami, just in that time, I closed contracts. They came my way. I made $7,000 in contracts. My Instagram following tripled. I got requests to coach in South America. I mean, everything changed that day. And I believe it really is only down to I am going to seize this moment as an opportunity for learning. This is not the end. This is a beginning. And that's how
1: I've lived my life since then. I love that story. It's huge. And it just shows you didn't go into the situation scared or thinking you're not going to make money. You were very open minded, looked for opportunities, booked this flight, and just welcomed whatever would happen. And what I love is it's not woo woo, right? Some people think these types of conversations are a little woo woo, but it just shows based on your experience and many other women in other episodes that this is the reality. And I think just having that abundance mindset when it comes to money and knowing that it's okay to like money, it's okay. To have financial freedom in your life. And what's interesting, you talked about how when you were in a marriage, you always leaned on your husband to manage the financing. And I can't tell you how many women have come on the podcast who are multimillionaires. Which positive, by the way, because it turned out he never paid off his credit
0: cards, he didn't pay our insurance bill. So do not leave very, very important matters in the hands of another person. And I always say this, and I say this with respect, which is why I'm interrupting you. I have a cat named Waffles. I love that cat. She has a wonderful life. But who wants to live like Waffles? In 2021, you are capable. And it's wonderful to realize. And this story is not woo-woo at all. It's super practical. I walked you through the steps. Start to change your mindset. Make any small dent of a difference. And you will have self-actualization and independence in your hands. And that's what you came here for. We all came here
1: to be on the playing field. Playing. Not to be spectators. Amen, Karen. I have goosebumps as you're saying that. It's so true. It's so true. And something I'm so passionate about too. And I want to shift gears and talk about another theme that comes up a lot in my interviews. And it's all around imposter syndrome, right? Even the most successful people, and I'm sure people you coach, are still dealing with that in their lives. So I'd love to hear from your perspective, how do we deal with imposter syndrome? And how do you work with your clients to just get over this horrible thought that everybody has about themselves? Well, let's
0: talk about imposter syndrome and let's talk about why overachievers are actually more likely to suffer from imposter syndrome. By the way, statistically, women and minorities are far more likely to experience imposter syndrome, according to the research, which started in the 70s as a first experiment on women and women's feelings about what imposter syndrome is. So let's talk about what imposter syndrome is first and foremost. Imposter syndrome is against in stark contrast to all the evidence in your life showing you the exact opposite, that you are good, you are successful, and you are killing it, you still have this nagging feeling underneath of being a fraud, of being found out, of not being good enough. That is what imposter syndrome is. Therefore, you are thinking like an imposter. An imposter thinks like nothing is ever enough, thinks in scarcity. For those who have had any access to Tony Robbins or any form of coaching. Scarcity mindset is to believe that the resources are finite. We're all competing for them. And therefore, I either have enough or don't have enough. But no matter what, another person having more is a problem for me. The opposite of this is the non imposter mindset. And there's enough for everybody. I'm doing great. I'm doing my best. This is in stark contrast to those who live in extreme bravado of believing that you're actually way better than you actually are. That's always flexing a muscle. That's overcompensation. You can smell it a mile away because it's very invulnerable. Overachievers in general are constantly trying to achieve. They're in pursuit. So of course, imposter syndrome is going to factor in and it's going to factor in in four different ways. So for those out there who don't like the word imposter and automatically think it doesn't apply to you. Let me talk about the four ways in which imposter syndrome does show up, and you're likely to actually experience it. The first form of imposter syndrome is know-it-all syndrome, know-it-all-itis. I know, I got this, you don't need to teach me anything new, I am already at the top of my game, peace out. That is imposter syndrome because it doesn't allow for any humility, for any learning. The only reason it's exhausting is because you have to flex that muscle all the time. Do you know how hard it is to constantly look like you've got your stuff together? I do not understand how any of these people on Instagram are constantly perfect. Don't like freak out the second they're discovered because no one's got it all together. That's ridiculous. The second form, and it's very common in overachievers is perfectionism. Perfectionism, is not a cool, humble brag that we use at interviews. It's actually a very difficult mental state. The mental state that believes that there is some measuring stick out there and we gotta line up with that measuring stick. We have to beat that measuring stick. And if we don't beat it, we are worthless. We will be such bullies towards ourselves. We will beat ourselves up for not being the right weight, for not hitting the right achievement, for not being on the Forbes 40 under 40. A crime against humanity, of course. This is a very, very intolerable state as well because the perfectionist is terrified of not being perfect and is constantly working to perfect the self. Imposter syndrome. The third form of imposter syndrome is defeatism. A little likely in overachievers, believe it or not. Defeatism is analysis paralysis. I have too many choices and I can't choose because if I choose the wrong one, I will make a mistake. So really defeatism is about the fear of making a mistake. The fear of, I won't even start, I can't do it. I can't reach that level of success, so I won't even try. To the defeatist, all you have to start to understand is that success takes many forms and you are a body of improvement and it's okay, just get started, just try. It's another form of perfectionism, by the way. It's just a little bit more melancholy. And the fourth, and this is my favorite, is workaholism. Workaholics are also suffering from imposter syndrome because if you didn't, why the hell are you working so hard? Because your real deep down belief is that if you don't work so hard, you'll either have to face whatever you need to face in your life, or everything will go to crap. This is not true. If you have a stable and solid business, you can take a month off easy. Nothing's going to happen. You could take your 500,000 followers away tomorrow. I'd still be Coach Karen. I'd still have my, my ability to coach, my ability to do this work, my knowledge. My leverage did not start yesterday. For all of these, there are many different solutions, but I'd like to offer two. The first is realize how much leverage you have. Really spend time appreciating your leverage. You did not start working, start doing, or start being yesterday. You have done a few wonderful things. Do not forget that. Don't let recency bias, the bias we have towards the last thing that happened to us, or this tiny sliver in time, collapse your magnificent achievements over the course of a lifetime or the arc of history. And the second is kind of morbid, but it's great. It's reflect on your mortality a little bit more. My very good friend Gigi died when we were 37. My friend Anne-Cecile died recently. She was 39. This is terrifying stuff, but it's really helped me focus on we are not promised tomorrow. None of us is. And that's a beautiful thought because every day therefore is a gift. So why live it being freaked out about anything?
1: I'm just digesting everything that you're mentioning, taking mental notes. But I so agree. And I think I clearly have imposter syndrome. And to your point, thinking about your mentality and just you have this one life, you don't know what tomorrow will bring. I think about that often. And I think it just puts certain things in priority whenever I get to that strange mental state or whatever I'm going through at that time. So
0: I hope it moves you to what have I got to lose?
1: Yes. That's yeah. true. And what's your worst case scenario, right? There's, it's not as bad as you think. <laughs> it's
0: never. In fact, as a person who's been broken sleeping on sofas, I got to tell you, it wasn't that bad. I watched <laughs> the entire series of Downton Abbey. <laughs> yeah. It was a lot of fun in many ways.
1: I love that. Well, there's so much that we can dig into here, but I want to get your perspective and I'm sure this is there's a lot that you can offer, but are there any for someone who doesn't have a coach right now? Any tactical tips or books? I know you mentioned a few books in terms of the money mindset that you would recommend our listeners to try or read because there's so much to dig into here.
0: Absolutely. Coaching, world-class coaching is expensive and should be. You get what you pay for and you will elevate yourself to the frequency of that when you're ready to do it. I hope that everyone finds themselves ready because there's nothing more game changing. But in the meantime, we are living in a world filled with podcasts like yours, YouTube videos, incredible abundance of wonderful books. Yes, some are garbage, but yes, some are wonderful wonderful books that will already begin to expand your mind. The first book that caught my attention, the first one while I was going through the divorce was The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen R. Covey. If you read it 20 years ago, read it again. It is a fountain of knowledge, a fountain of wealth. There is access to so much. Just begin by accepting these doses of inspiration every day with whichever voice resonates with you and watch your life transform.
1: I haven't read that in eight years. I'm going to go get the book and reread it because I think it's a classic and such a good one for sure. Well, Karen, I want to close on one last question that we love to ask all of our guests. Wealth means so much more than money and everybody has their own definition of wealth. At this point in your life, what does wealth mean to you?
0: Wealth means one thing, and that is the only thing that anybody really wants. I challenge everyone out there to probe what they want or what they think they want. And they'll find that really the reason they want that thing is only one thing, and that is happiness. Wealth is genuine happiness, which is available to absolutely all of us, even those who were preternaturally more disposed to a more melancholy disposition. We can all become very, very happy and happy most of the time. And here's what happiness means. It is not a silly word or a word that has to be specified. It simply means, and this is the Esther Hicks or Abraham Hicks definition, which I love, satisfied with what is and eager for more. Like the end of a great meal. I had a great meal and I'm super excited to eat again when I'm ready. That is what happiness truly is. And it implies two things. Number one, you are not fixated on what you don't have. You are satisfied with what you do have. And number two, you're frisky. You still have much to grow, much excitement about the growth, but not freaking out about the growth. This is a wonderful and ideal state, and I wish that for everybody out there.
1: And the only way to get there is this, be easy on yourself.
0: You are doing way
1: better than you think. Beautiful, Karen. Thank you so much for joining us today and sharing all your wealth of wisdom. We'll definitely have to do a part two because there's so much for us to continue to talk about.
0: It was such a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.